Today on episode number 450 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, How to Not Be Perfect in Teaching and Learning with Dr. Rebecca Price. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Becca Price fulfilled the dream of her four-year-old self to become a paleontologist. When she began her faculty career, however, she realized how little her students understood about how evolution actually works. That inspired her to switch research directions to focus on how students learn science and how early career scientists learn how to teach with evidence-based practices. Since 2011, she has run the Science Teaching Experience Program, which has the mission to engage a diverse pool of early career scholars at the University of Washington and affiliate institutions in a closely mentored apprenticeship to learn how to teach scientifically with inclusive, demonstratively effective, student-centered pedagogies. To date, she has mentored 131 postdocs through STEPWISE, which is an acronym, S-T-E-P-W-I-S-E, as a professor in the School of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at the University of Washington. Dr. Price teaches students to conduct scientific research and encourages them to think about how they'll use their college and other life experiences in a way that is gratifying to them after graduation. She still dreams about fossils. Becca, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I need you to do a little back then and then today, all around you wanting to be a paleontologist when you were four <laughs> years old. Right? Well, as a, a child of the 70s, I remember when Lucy was discovered. And do you remember the early human? No. And Okay, so... Um, but, but thank you, because I instantly started going Charlie Brown, and I'm like, she's not going Charlie Brown. No, this is not where she's going. Yes, so tell me more. It's, it was such a big moment in my life. It can be hard to forget that it wasn't a big moment in other people's lives. <laughs> this was an early member of the human lineage. This is Australopithecus afarensis is, is her species name. And she was, the at the time, the oldest skeleton that we'd found that we knew walked upright. And paleontologists could tell that because of her hip structure and her knee structure. And when I was five, there was a museum exhibit about her at the California Academy of Sciences. And I loved going to the academy as a child. My parents would take me there quite often. And this exhibit just entranced me. And one of the things that they did in exhibit was they in the exhibit was they had a wall with puzzle pieces and some of the pieces were present and those were telling us what we knew about human evolution. And then there were pieces that were absent too. Oh and I remember gosh. thinking, I want to fill one of those pieces. Oh my gosh. How vivid. It was a very visual, it's a very visual memory. And 
you know, his family was there and it was, yeah, just a really inspiring experience for a little kid. And do you in general tend to remember a lot about your childhood or does it tend to be that there are things that really reverberate, but there's other things where you go, wow, I, I don't? Because I'm, th- I'm thinking contrasting Dave, who he he literally can go kindergarten. This was my teacher. First grade. This was my teacher. And I go like, I, I, I how can you possibly do that? So I'm curious what if you, if you fall into some range and between knowing all those names and having those vivid memories or maybe a little bit more just this really stands out to you. It's definitely something in between. And this memory stands out and it's been been reinforced over the years. Because when I did become a paleontologist. Well, actually, even before then, when I was in college, I had a research experience for undergraduates at the California Academy of Sciences. And so it was really neat to launch my career in research at the same institution where I was inspired to study evolution. Now, at that in that research experience, I was looking at sea slugs, so totally different (laughs) group of organisms than humans, of course. But that was such a foundational experience in terms of my research. And to have both of those experiences anchored to the same institution reinforced that that visual memory. Mm. I would love to hear a little bit more about how did you learn science? Yeah. So I mentioned that going to the Academy of Sciences was a family treat. It was something that we we did a lot. So I have a traditional background in science in that I come from a family of scientists. My mom has a PhD in computer sciences. My aunt is a PhD chemist. Their cousin is a PhD physicist. And then my grandfather is also a PhD chemist. So it really, both PhDs and science were part of the family business. <laughs> and so I'm exactly the kind of student who now in my teaching, I'm not necessarily reaching out to, mm-hmm. right? Because I was the kind of student who would be in science regardless. I think it's much more important to broaden participation in science and to ha- see help everybody see how they are inherently scientists because people have inherently have questions about the natural world so i'm fortunate enough to be at an institution with a lot of first generation college students and spend a lot of time working with them to hone their skills and interests in in science Well, you told us how you learned science, but tell us more about how should people learn science today? I actually want to jump back just a bit to everybody being a scientist, because that became solidified for me when I became a parent. And I read this wonderful book by Patricia Cole called Scientist in the Crib. It's about how babies start acquiring information. And so much of it is through experimentation. And I remember when my kids discovered that they had hands and they would look at them and start moving them and then realize they were in control of that movement, right? Mm. And that's the scientific process right there. That's testing a hypothesis, that's predicting outcome. So yeah, I think when I say it's an, an inherent, that science is an inherent way for people to think, it's because those are some of the first thoughts that we have. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to add that I've been really lucky to ha- to all my life know 
women scientists. I mentioned my grandfather is a PhD chemist, and he worked with a number of women chemists. And so they were people that I, I saw my grandfather quite a bit growing up. And so these were people who he established friendships with and who I encountered throughout my elementary school and middle school and high school days. So there wasn't really any question about whether I could do that. Yeah. And of course, having my mom as a computer scientist helped with that too. And I remember thinking how funny it was that my parents would get mail for Dr. and Ms. Price when they got it backwards, right? It was my mom that mm-hmm. had the PhD and my dad that didn't. So it was really Dr. and Mr. Price. And we just thought it was funny back then. <laughs> But there was, it was more a reflection of naivete that was more understandable than it would be now. So it was just a chuckle to see mail addressed like that. Oh, yeah. Was it to the extent that you would have called it normal, but it wasn't at the time normal? I mean, would it have seemed at the time normal to you, but you know, in society, it wasn't? That my mom had the PhD and my dad didn't? Sorry, seeing women scientists. Yeah. Oh, it felt very normal to me to see women scientists. Yeah. Well, tell us more then about how should people, because as you already have inferred, people don't always today even see the women scientists in the context in which they are. People today don't always have people offering, fostering a mindset that we are all scientists. So what should we be trying to do today? Well, I think this ties into my teaching philosophy quite a bit, which is to, to explain to students what they need to succeed in science. So I work on the quarter system. We only have 10 weeks with the students. And one of my favorite courses to teach is one on science methods and practice, it's called. And students conduct research projects from start to finish. So they jump into paleontology. There's a wonderful database online called the Paleobiology Database. And All of the fossil occurrences that have been able to be entered into this database have been entered. So it's through time, throughout the globe, and students can dive into the database and ask research questions that nobody's ever asked before. And we learn some very basic statistical tests, and they jump into the primary literature to justify the question that they're asking to interpret the results that they get. they Some of the students come into the class with previous statistical experience, but few come into the class having done stats on their data. So the ownership element of learning statistics in an applied way really pays off. And I do this class now with an ungrading philosophy or mm, specifications grading mm. philosophy because mm. I'm still bound by needing to give them a grade. And... Just like Linda Nilsson suggests, I offer tiers. So the main tier in the course gives them a B, and that is all work related to finishing the research project. So they finish the research project, which means writing a scientific paper, going through the peer review process, and then resubmitting the paper along with the cover letter explaining the changes that they made. Mm, Wow. And... Then there, the other tiers allow them to think a little bit more about science and society or to go deeper into the research process by learning more statistical techniques and reading more literature. 
the trick is that everybody can do it, right? Because I'm using specifications, the students know right away that my expectations are for them to succeed. I'm not grading on a curve. I am constantly collecting data on what they understand so that they can respond to the feedback that they get and meet the goals. And I I hope that that is increasing people's understanding of and appreciation for science more broadly. That's my intent in the course. I, I enjoyed so much the way that you, your voice naturally modulated as you sort of said, ungrading, but then it's not really, it's really specifications grading. I, I chuckled because I do that a lot. You know, we want to be precise in our language, although I think if some of the people who are really you know, at the grassroots of speci- of ungrading, they would probably say that what you're doing, you know, is a form of that. I mean, be- because right. it's, I-, I think they're really trying to resist being put into like, you have to do it perfectly because there is no perfectly and context really does matter. And when yeah. we're thinking about context, both disciplinary as well as within our uh, context in which we teach, it makes a difference. All this to say, I get curious because I I literally could have said the words that you just said in exactly the way that you said them to describe mostly how I'm approaching a lot of assessment these days. And and I, I do get curious because my values are very much aligned. I mean, they're 100% aligned with what you just said. I, I, really, truly, they are. I haven't done as good of a job, whatever good means here, at being able to say, you know, if what you want is the B, you know, here it is. And then if you want is the A and having that be clear. And my limitations, that feels like is so much because of the learning management system. And I'm not even going to name which one I use because I happen to think it's the best I've ever used. So I don't want to be critique. It's just that they in general aren't designed to accomplish that. And what I do get out of the current learning management system, which I wouldn't want to give up is... I haven't had a question about what is my grade in your class? What like where do I stand? What do I need? In years I forgot what that's even like cuz I have it so dialed in and then when I hear things like you just said I'm like, "Oh my gosh." And, and in, including a recent conversation with David Clark which I still treasure so much. I should go back and listen to it again. It was about deadlines and all of that. And so then I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I I want to do what you're doing." But then if I do, oh, I got to do it in a spreadsheet and then they're not going to see it. So anyway, I'm just curious if you have any advice for those of us who would love to do what you're talking about, but can't figure out how to bend our learning management system to do it and all of that. So I use a learning management system where I can have categories of grades. Mm -hmm. And so the the core groups add up to 80% of the grade. Mm-hmm. And then there's 10% for the science and society and 10% for the going deeper into the research process. And the learning management system then just then does the math. So let me just, so I would be going along in your class yeah. and I'd be adding up to 80% all the way, right? And if I got my 80%, I know that's a B. And then if I wanted to, there are two more modules or however you have them organized and I could do those. And then I would see it. I literally, when I would log in, I would see it then potentially move up to 90 and then potentially move up from there. Is that, is that, so I, you still accomplish everything I'm accomplishing and then you get that added 
people that's can exact, really dial that's it exactly back right. Oh. That's exactly right. Yeah. And one of the things that I like about this approach is if if students do some of the assignments in science and society, but not all, they're still getting maybe a 5% grade boost instead of the 10% grade boost, but that work is still getting recognized. Mm. I also am quite flexible with deadlines. I am still trying to figure out how much of that flexibility to share with the students in week one. And I also recognize that the pandemic, you know, every quarter of teaching since the pandemic started has been different. And so that's not a a decision that I can make at the beginning of the quarter, how much flexibility, how much strictness, how much flexibility to offer. What I need to do is make sure that everybody in the class understands the degree of flexibility. Yes. Right. So if some people are are being are turning in assignments a week late and other people are turning them on but not passing them, that's not fair. Right. It's actually one of the things that makes specifications grading easier because if somebody wants to resubmit an assignment, okay, go ahead. You can resubmit. That's fine. Yeah, it is that that's so important to be articulating those things out loud or otherwise we introduce those inequities inadvertently. And I I feel that same tension that I'm hearing you describe of, I I just talked about it last week. So it was, hey, I, what is important to me? I want you to not just, you know, survive, but I want you to thrive. And what thriving looks like to me is that we could be curious about these things together and learn a lot and have some fun. If you turn something in late, our learning management system, I can't say, oh, after a week, do this. So it will start to do 1% deduction, and it has a a minimum threshold at which it will not deduct anymore. And so theoretically, you could wait until the end of the semester and have a three-day, but that's not how this class is designed. (laughs) I get it. It may, that could for someone end up being the case, so that is possible. I want them to know that. And then I also talked openly about not knowing what I'm doing when it comes to deadlines, because what do I want them to do? The same thing I want to do when I agree to meet a friend to go for a walk, because I know that some kind of synchronous agreement will be more likely that I will walk more. And so some kind of a synchronous agreement that you turn it in on that time means you get to experience the class in a somewhat similar way to how it was designed in terms of scaffolding, getting to practice these skills and play with them and all of that and get to know each other, get to know me, you know, because otherwise you miss that stuff. But, you know, admitting it feels clumsy, you know? So I I tell them like, oh, if you turn it in two days late, there's a little thing where I can just click on the thing and say, because there's something psychological about if it was specifications and you met all of them, I explain it to them without saying specifications. But but it's like, I don't play games with you. If you do these things that are right here, you're going to get a hundred points. Like that, that is just like, see, no games. But yeah, it might be 98 because you turned it in, you know, a couple of days late. And then I'm just going to go boop, boop, and it's going to be back to a hundred. So none of us have to go, dang it, if only I would have turned it in on time, because that's not my intent behind the deadline. But that's really hard to explain to people who don't know yet if they can trust me on these things. And because they've been so used to the games for so long that like, whoa, what is this? This is a whole new (laughs) thing I've not experienced before. So, yeah. Yeah. In my learning management system, we can grade on on complete or incomplete. And Mm. so I do all my grading on complete. So that's one of the ways that. that I have. I need to look into that. 
Yeah, um, I have a feeling we might be using the same one. But <laughs> yeah. You could put should, should it we, you could put it in the chat if you want. No, you could say it out loud. I think we the audience can be trusted. Yes. <laughs> well, we use Canvas. Same. I have yeah. a feeling. <laughs> yeah. So there's a complete incomplete option. Yeah. I thought I had heard I, that. Yeah. I mean, they even so. have the whole mastery grade book that, you know, there's so much that so much that can be done. That's why I didn't want to seem like I was, you know, it's just sometimes it's on us because I haven't learned it yet, you know, how to make my values show up in, you know, in the learning management system. I just wanted to get back to one idea that that you mentioned, Bonnie, because I think it's really important for inclusivity. And that's when is it okay to to say, oh, I made a mistake or, oh, this is clumsy. Mm -hmm. And I'm the kind of person that I, I can't not do clumsy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but there's just an inherent part of my teaching and the way my brain works where I'm making mistakes. And so I embrace that. And it's one of the things that I tell my students about why I use this approach to grading. Perfection doesn't mean learning. Perfection means that you have usually a very low stress life and a lot of privilege. (laughs) So what I want to see is learning and I'm learning too. And how do you build a community that allows for mistakes and learning from those mistakes. I was listening to one of your podcasts recently where you talked about just the beauty of learning from mistakes. And I that resonates with me so much. And one of the things that happened in my class last quarter, this the science class, the science research class, was that most of my students scored under an 80% on an exam about statistics. And with my implementation of specifications grading, 80% is my threshold. So that meant that most of the class did not pass the exam. And so we had a class meeting about it. Mm. And I said, you know, let's approach this like a research project. Right? Here's the, and I moved it into third person to offer a little bit of distance to us. Like, Here's a professor who thought her, most of her students would pass an exam. They didn't what went wrong. And then I I mentioned different hypotheses. People didn't do the practice test. Was that true or false? And so we made a little survey to address some of the hypotheses that we generated. The students looked through the data in the survey, came up with interpretations of what might have misfired, and then came up and voted on a strategy for how they wanted to proceed. And they asked for a makeup exam that would be a take-home exam that they would complete by the end of the term. And in the take-home exam, I asked them what they'd learned from this discussion. And one student's answer in particular was deeply, deeply meaningful because what they wrote was that not doing well in an exam wasn't about blaming the students. It was about a discussion about what miscommunication happened and how to address the miscommunication. So this student got the intent of the discussion perfectly and was able to move from a situation where they were used to feeling some kind of shame to, oh, this really is part of the assessment feedback loop, right? And the that cycle became misaligned at the assessment stage. And so let's give feedback to improve the assessment. And it was just a beautiful a really beautiful experience. One of the most moving experiences I've had in rethinking my pedagogy in a long time. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. I can only imagine what that would have been like for you and for that student. 
Because sometimes to me, it's, you know, we, we, we get, catch these glimpses and then you go, well, my gosh, it helps me just go how misguided I have been and so grateful for where I sit today such that I can be some tiny, tiny sliver of not having people experience exams in such unproductive, unhelpful, and unkind ways. I wanted to ask a quick clarifying question. I think I'm getting it, but so 80% is the threshold that gets marked as complete. Yes. Oh, so, yeah. so good. And one person got a 79. Uh, and that was so hard. That was so, so hard. Like, sorry. Yeah, this didn't quite, this didn't quite get there. So do they then need to resubmit or is that not an option for an exam? So what the class decided was that they could take a makeup exam if they wanted to. Hmm. Yeah. One big, big category we haven't discussed yet is a big one. <laughs> so let's see how we do, because we only have a couple minutes before we get to the recommendation segment. Would love to hear your thoughts about our tendency to think about active learning in binary ways and the extent to which that is helpful or not helpful. Oh, Bonnie, you you mentioned how our ideas about what an exam mean has means has changed over time. And my idea of active learning has changed over time as well, because I think I used to fall into that binary. And I wanted to just eliminate the lecture entirely and only be doing activities in class. And since then, I've been trying to figure out how much lecture do I add back in? And how do I do it in a way that's responding to students' needs? So I think this is, if you'll excuse the play on words, it's an active process for me. It's a dynamic process of trying to figure out how to balance and in what, what context to balance the amount of active learning with, with more passive instruction. One thing that I like to do is that if I do give a mini lecture on something, it's after there's been a hook. So I start by giving students a task to complete or a problem to consider. Instead of front-loading and saying, all right, you're going to need to remember A, B, C, and D in order to complete this activity, they start with the activity and then they get stuck because they don't know A, B, C, and D. And then they're curious and ready to pay attention to what I'm going to say and parse out the information they need. In my work with mentoring new instructors, this is really a, a tricky balance to help them find, too. They're so used to learning by lecture, and they've developed their strategies for making lecture active for them, for example, through note-taking, through learning how to study from lecture materials after the lecture instead of during the lecture, that it is a really big switch in how they frame teaching to begin with a worksheet, to begin with, here's something that's going to guide a series of activities. The basic information you need is on the on the worksheet. That that knowledge level blooms work is presented on the worksheet because we don't need class time to get a lecture on that, right? But there are still parts that are confusing. So those emerge from whole class discussion. Those emerge from student questions, and it's also a very powerful way to wrap up class. All right. Here are here is what we reviewed. 
maybe revisit the learning goals. This is how we achieved these learning goals as a, as a recap and as a kind of a comprehension level or understanding level of Bloom's taxonomy summary of what happened in class. Becca, it helps so much. And I, I know that we're just skimming the surface. And this is just, I love hearing you talk about all of the ways that you're taking your values, you're taking your disciplinary knowledge, and you're helping to people to be more curious about that. And you were reminding me a little bit of an article. I'm not sure if you've heard of this one, but Derek Breff had told me about it at Time for Telling. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that article because you were just talking about that very thing. You know, how do we get how do we get people to be curious about about these things? And I definitely see, you know, it being more of a continuum and you describing that as, you know, this is active learning is not you're doing it or you're not. And so active learning, there are ways in which we can get closer to having people be 100% of the time active, and that's probably not a goal anyway, so we're not aiming for 100%. And depending on one's strengths, context, a whole bunch of factors, we also don't want to be at 0%, so somewhere along that continuum. And so we're asking people to go from 0 to 100 when 100% I don't think we think is ideal. And then what if then you're asking them to leave everything that they have known to be effective when some parts of it probably were and could be enhanced if we then add in active learning. Yes. It reminds me a couple of a couple of things. One is that students are transitioning from lecture to more active learning too. Mm-hmm. So it's a it can be a real challenge for them depending on what their experiences have been prior to coming to our classrooms. Yes. And I also wanted to mention a paper by Kimberly Tanner's team. I believe Owens is the first author. It's a PNAS paper, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences paper about the DART, which is a decibel rating of classroom noise. And they, in the paper, they are connecting the the decibel level to the amount of activity in the classroom. So if it's really quiet, students are doing individual work. If it's one person talking, the algorithm interprets this as lecture and then lots of voices ends up being group discussion. And they show profiles of different instructors. And even the instructors in the sample who use the most evidence-based teaching have a large portion of the class at that one-person level of talking. And I think that's really thought-provoking. It's a higher percentage of the class than the... (laughs) Let me see if I can say this correctly. The lowest percentage of lecture is higher than I would have predicted, right? I would have predicted the lowest amount of lecture to maybe be 10% of the class. It's not. It's much higher than that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really interesting paper to look up for thinking about how much active learning versus lecture goes on in a classroom. Wonderful. I had forgotten all about her work. As soon as you said her name, though, I instantly hearkened back to some past episodes. And I'm looking forward. We'll put that in the show notes, too. And it'll be fun to continue the conversation as people have a chance to look at it and think through that. It's fascinating. And of course, I instantly start thinking about what does that look like when the class is being held on Zoom? And because the decibel level is probably not the appropriate measure, but then what would it be? And I think it would be like a combination of factors. So it's, I mean, it's just fascinating. Anyway, thank you so much for that. 
Before Becca and I get to the recommendations segment, I just wanted to take a moment and thank today's sponsor, and it's Text Expander. Text Expander by a long shot is the longest running sponsor, and I'm so glad that they continue. They just signed up for 2023. We just signed the agreement, and I'm excited to continue to share things about Text Expander. But today, I actually have someone named John who wrote to me and said thanks for the podcast, and he talked about how he's learned so much and he now has a recommendations segment in his class once a week where a few students give recommendations similar to our guests, which I thought that was such a clever idea. So thanks, John, for writing to me, but specifically to Text Expander, which, by the way, is a service that lets you easily type in a few characters and they expand to something that's either lengthy and would be take a lot longer to type or something that's hard to remember, like for me, my work phone number. But for John, he talks about how he's picked up using Text Expander from the show. And he says it's great for Greek letters and mathematical symbols. And then he gave some examples. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say, although you'll never know, (laughs) that I only recognized one or two of them. I think one is Sigma, and that may may be all I recognize. So only John will know the other ones that he sent to me. So I don't know how embarrassed I should be. But he says that having those mathematical symbols and the Greek letters have saved him a lot of time. And now, John, I want to go in and, you know, find even more ways that Text Expander can save me because I just continually do that. And I hadn't really thought about that. And I will say that I suspect that if we go up and look, they probably already have these mathematical symbols and Greek letters. Someone probably has a database or a little thing we can download inside of Text Expander that we don't even have to create those shortcuts ourselves. So anyway, just something to think about for saving times because Text Expander isn't just a piece of software or service. It's also a community and they're constantly, you know, gathering together people that are in different industries and different professions and disciplines. And we kind of help each other geek out a little bit about how Text Expander can help us. So thanks, John, for helping me geek out. Thanks to those of you who head over to textexpander.com slash podcast and give it a try. Give it a try. You get can get a free trial and then redeem 20% off of any subscription. So please do let them know that you heard about Text Expander from teaching in higher ed. So thanks once again to Text Expander. Head over textexpander.com slash podcast. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I just have two quick related ones. I recently got to attend a series of intentionally equitable hospitality sessions from Equity Unbound. And what they did during the breaks is a woman from Kenya named Irene would lead our breaks and it would be Dance with Irene. So my recommendation to you is to dance with Irene, whether you've met her or not. I mean, I got, she had herself off camera and the woman would dance for five minutes through a song and I it would just absolutely provide me energy not just during the session but throughout the rest of the day so thank you to Irene from Kenya for leading us in dances I just think we could do that more in life and be better and specifically I wanted to share the song that Irene shared on the first session and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this all right but I'm going to give it my best go Oskido's Candy, Tsa Mandebella Kids. And so this is a YouTube video, and it has this musician and all the kids and them singing. 
And I think it's now probably going to be my most listened to song for 2023. And we are only in January at this point. I mean, my goodness gracious, I've listened to it so many times. And yes, I have danced with Irene in my imagination because she's not there every time I listen, but she's there in my heart and in my soul and in my imagination. And I just, I think, Thank, I'm thankful for all of those experiences and specifically for kind of doing things in unusual ways to uplift other people's spirits from all over the world. And she certainly did that for me with the music and with her vulnerability to just, you know, it's inviting when, and by the way, I'm not saying she looked foolish dancing because the woman knows how to move, but like, like, no, no, like just like inviting to be like, be human with me. And dancing is such a natural human thing to do. Speaking of babies, babies dance in their own ways and things like that. So, you know, inviting people to do very human, vulnerable things just seems like what we all need more of. Becca, you were talking about how every semester with the pandemic is different. And I concur with that experience. And Irene's just nourishing my soul as we speak and the idea of just showing up in the fullness of ourselves in lots of ways, including dancing. So now I get to pass it over to you, Becca, for whatever you would like to recommend. Thank you so much. This this actually ties very nicely into one of my recommendations because I think that dance is a form of, of nurturing well-being. And I've been incorporating some mindful practices into my classroom. And I wanted to recommend a resource that the University of Washington has put together called the Wellbeing the Wellbeing for Life Learning Guidebook and it has a number of resources that help instructors think about their students' well-being and mental health and the way we can promote those in our classrooms and i also wanted to recommend a uh, couple of journals to you. One is Course Source, and it's an opportunity for right now biologists and physicists to publish peer-reviewed lessons. Wow. And it's really helped me in some of the professional development work I've done when I'm working with junior faculty or postdocs about demonstrating the seriousness with, with which they think of teaching. Sometimes we put so much time into a lesson and we find that it's one that works really, really well. And so this is an opportunity to publish that. They also have, there are different classes within, there are different courses within biology and within physics, and they have a professional development course too, which might interest you and and some of your readers. So I've been able to publish there about a module about, a lesson about women in science and how to support women in science. I have colleagues and I have published another lesson in the professional development about starting to use active learning. And I find it just a really rewarding way to join a conversation about teaching mm-hmm. and to have it that that part of the conversation recognized academically um, by promotion committees, by, by hiring committees. The other journal I wanted to recommend is Life Sciences Education. And Kimberly Tanner, who we mentioned earlier, is one of the editors. The other is, is Jeff Shinsky. I am one of the monitoring, monitoring editors for the journal. And we have a feature called Anatomy of an Education Study. And I'm one of the editors that works on that particular feature. And it's annotations about papers that have been published in the journal that feature different kinds of methods 
So a lot of us interested in learning in higher education might not have been trained in education. We're gaining our proficiencies and our research experiences on the fly. And so this is a way to introduce folks specifically in the context of biology to what it's like to do education research. So we go into background, we go into writing tips and teaching tips, but also research methods and vocabulary. So it's a really fun place to start thinking about educational research that anyone might want to do. Do I have time for one more recommendation? You bet. I mean, you have time for 10. No, sorry, I'm kidding. <laughs> but but like, oh, these are so, I'm trying to stop talking so I can hear all these, but everyone, I just want to go like, could we pause so I can go look at this? And I mean, they <laughs> talk about them. They're, oh, they're all so much fun. They to, sound so fun. So I can't wait to hear what's next, but I'm sure we have time. <laughs> <laughs> so this is in a different direction, but I really wanted to mention it because we've ex- we've talked in email about how much I've appreciated recommendations that I've heard on your podcast. And I learned about a wonderful young adult author named Nettie Akorafor from a previous guest. And she has a, a trilogy, the first book of which is called Akata Witch, that is some wonderful young adult fantasy that goes into a different kind of magic that those of us in the West typically read. So it's just a whole nother way of processing magic and thinking about how magic and culture can be intertwined and the influence of the West on this, this magic just because of the dominance of Western culture. I just got such joy from reading this trilogy, and I, I hope that some of your listeners will too. You and I exchanged emails and you referenced the the Binti series yeah. and I instantly just went like, buy it, like instantly. <laughs> but I haven't had a chance to even start reading. But this was one where I'm, I'm so looking to diving in and I realized my own lack of knowledge about magic and culture and the ways in which I'm sure I have a completely limited and 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 misinformed appreciation. So this sounds even that I would get educated about even other things that I would like to learn more about because I hear references to it and I know I'm not getting it. So <laughs> that just sounds amazing. So thank you so much for all of these recommendations. And Becca, what a pleasure it has been to have this conversation and then have the ones that have taken place offline. And I am so looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure to be here. Dr. Becca Price, what a pleasure it is to be connected with you. Thank you so much for your current contributions and for all the ones forthcoming. Thanks to each of you for listening to today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you've yet to subscribe to the weekly update, I encourage you to do that because you'll receive the show notes and recommendations in your email once a week, along with some other goodies that don't show up in the regular episodes or on the website. You can head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support provided by the amazing Sierra Smith. I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.